Hello, hello, welcome to Raj Understand Podcast. The guest of today's episode is Zoharda Chowdhury. He developed PhotoNet system, multi-stage deep neural networks used for raga identification in Indian classical music. It also provides live feedback mechanisms for learning the art form. With this innovative project, he won numerous awards at this year's ISAF in Phoenix, Arizona, as you might know, including the best use of a data award offered by GoDaddy and third place acoustical science award by the Acoustical Society of America and third place in robotics and intelligent machines. He's an aerospace, robotics, and machine learning researcher. He continued research at Caltech and also Berkeley. We've expanded on those experiences as well. It's such a fun conversation, and you don't want to miss this out. Hi, Soharda. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Nice to be on here. Thank you for having me on. For sure. I believe and I feel like this conversation will be literally music to our ears. <laughs> because you combined Indian or Hindustani classical music with deep neural networks. So where did the project idea stem from? Yeah, that's exactly um, what happened. So it's actually a funny story. I wasn't always um, involved or even interested in Indian music. Uh, so it kind of all started with this project that I was doing in my school English class. So when I was studying um, humanities, actually, we were, we were supposed to analyze an Indian movie. And in this project, I, I picked this Indian movie and uh, we were, I was doing analysis and I, I was really bored the whole time. I was saying, why do I have to do this? <laughs> But um, actually what I ended up finding was that the, the music within that movie was actually composed by a famous Indian classical um, musician. His name is Ravi Shankar. So from that point on, I kind of just fell in love with, with this art form. And it's this extremely improvisational, intricate um, type of music uh, that I, I just I, I started listening to more and more. And I, when I was doing some research, like I think your original question was how I combined this with, with machine learning. Is that correct? Yeah, so how did you start, you know, working on the project? Yeah. So um, what happened was I, I did some research um, because I was kind of interested in this music and I realized that there weren't that many teachers um, of this musical form anymore because the way that the music is preserved, it's through an oral tradition called Guru Shishya. So uh, Western music, it has kind of a written notation um, for teaching, but Indian classical music and Hindustani classical music, it doesn't have that kind of notation. So it's all taught through an oral tradition. Um, that's been in existence for like centuries. It's, it's one of the oldest musical traditions of the world. Mm. Uh, but unfortunately, in modern times, it's more and more difficult to preserve the music through an oral tradition due to urbanization and modernization. So this kind of music is slowly being lost. So I found out there are already lots of ragas um, and Indian classical music things that are, that are fading away due to time. They aren't able to be preserved through the system. So I decided to use my previous background in machine learning that I had to try to solve this, to try to solve the problem. And I created the PhonoNet system, which is essentially attempts to create a written representation or a digital representation of the music and also aid people in their learning to kind of improve the oral tradition known as Guru Shishya in the modern times and, and bring it into that, the current era. 
so cool that you preserve the music that really permeates the whole uh, Hindustani culture and that you use this modern kind of implementation to achieve that goal. And I just really like that how it stemmed from a little bit of boredom and you were thinking outside of the box to do your project. And of course, it was well beyond the borders of that project at the time. Exactly. Like, when I was little, I, I actually... I didn't even know it, but when I was little, there was actually a great um, Hindustani classical musician who came to um, to San Diego to perform. His name was Ajay Chakraborty, and I actually I stayed home from that performance because I I I was said like, oh, I'm not interested. I told my friends I don't want to listen to that old Indian music. So I totally changed my interest completely in high school, and I'm I'm, I'm way more interested in this art form now. So you preferred raggy over raga at that time, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps I've heard um, implementation of that Indian uh, classical music in films, but I'm not quite sure. Are different kinds of instruments um, implemented in that music? Yeah, so it's a really improvisational art form. So I can maybe give a little bit of background on how it, it works. So um, in, in traditional Western music, you kind of go into a performance with the composition that you have um, beforehand. But Indian classical music, you can think of it's more like jazz. So it's actually based on improvisations on these melodic modes called ragas, and that is the basis of improvisation. For example, there could be a raga for the morning called raga poirast, and that would be, um, that would use a specific pattern of notes that is characteristic to that raga, and you would use that as a basis for improvisation. So you can create all kinds of different improvisations and patterns with that basic um, structure. So Indian classical music can have lots of different instruments involved, but my project focused on the analysis of vocal music because that's what I had the data available for. Um, but generally what, what happens is you sing with a drone instrument called a tanpura, which plays uh, a specific, like it plays four notes over and over again. And then from that, you just improvise and sing yourself. Uh, so it's kind of, it's, it's very similar to jazz in that multiple instruments can be added to kind of interweave and there's a rhythmic section as well. Um, it's very intricate, but it's also very difficult for all of those reasons to preserve in that written format. Very interesting. So there's this fundamental structure and then it also allows for artistic creativity. Exactly. We've got the classical music part, but now I'm interested in the deep learning. So we're going to go down deep in that. Um, could you expand on the Phononet system? I know you've used that in your project. The Phononet system is something that I've created. And it's actually a general purpose machine learning architecture that's not specific to applications of music. But essentially what it is, it's, it was designed for this project because these Indian music performances can be so long, like hours in length. And most of uh, the machine learning algorithms, like convolutional neural networks, they're not used to dealing with things that are so um, large in the temporal domain. So I created this hierarchical system, which is able to examine um, kind of large temporal tasks at two levels. So the first thing I do is I take the, this data set that I acquired from the University of Pompo Fabra, I think that might be in Spain, actually. Um, so I, I, I acquired... Um, that data set from, from, it was available online. And that's had a lot of audio samples stored in an MP3 standard audio format. And it, it was labeled that this, this audio is in this raga. Mm -hmm. So I downloaded this data set and obviously a machine learning algorithm can't just look at an MP3 file and digest what that means. So what I did was I converted the MP3 format 
into another audio format called a chromogram. And that chromogram essentially looks at what are the pitch classes um, over time. But as I mentioned earlier, Indian classical performances are really long in, in, in length. So each of these chromograms that I was generating were like an hour or two long. And when I first tried training a deep neural network on it, it was not performing well at all. Um, it was doing like a little better than random guessing. Okay. So what I tried was actually splitting up that giant chromogram into smaller chunks. So I split them up into 150 second chunks and trained a convolutional neural network, which is like one of the most common types of machine learning algorithms, to predict the raga when given 150 second chunks of, of data. Now, this it could do with 78.9% accuracy, which is pretty good, but not as good as I want. Um, so what I ended up doing after that was I added something called a recurrent network in the second stage of learning, which looked at the output from the first stage, those 150 second chunks, and actually looked at how that changed over time and aggregated all of the predictions of the, of the 150 second chunk predictions to create an overall prediction for the entire song. So that system was able to get 98.9% accuracy on the Hip Music Hindustani Art Recognition Dataset, which is like a new benchmark actually for that. It's really interesting to hear also that when in the beginning of a project you didn't get the result that you wanted, your way of dealing with that was actually looking at a smaller scale and then building up from that. And I think it's so cool to hear that sometimes we might get overwhelmed, that it doesn't work, but you actually gotta keep calm and then start looking at the little pieces, start doing it from, from that part. So that's exactly right. I did look at the smaller details first. So the majority of this, the project was actually spent tuning and getting that 78.9% accuracy that I mentioned on the 150 second scale. So there were a lot of other pieces that that fell into this. Like how did I land at a 150 second number? I had to do a lot of experiments tuning. Oh, if I do 160 seconds versus 140 seconds, or if I expand the chromogram or contract the chromogram, how does that affect the performance? So there was a lot of minute um, tuning that was involved in getting the system to the performance that it was at. So I definitely looked more at the smaller scale before going to try to do the, the big picture thing. And now also artists can tune into your system, is that right? Yeah, so I actually have a application that I developed that's available on GitHub. Um, so I, I just call it like Phononet GUI, where you can <laughs> download it. And um, you, can, you can open it up and you can upload an MP3 file of your singing or you can put a YouTube link uh, to a performance and it'll actually, it'll download that and it will, it'll process it with my algorithm and, and give you um, a prediction of the raga and also a visualization. I didn't really get into that, that, that part of the project yet. It was just a visualization. That's actually what creates the, the written format of the, that I, that I talked about earlier. Um, but it uses that internet system to do that. Uh, and, and, and it creates a visualization of the audio that you sing. Part of that Phononet system, you've mentioned a couple of times chromograms. I've heard about and I work with chromatograms, but a chromogram is what depicts or what visualizes the tunes or... That's exactly correct. So chromogram, it's, yeah, so it's different from a chromatogram, but a chromogram, essentially, it's a, it's a structure for, for storing musical data that, as I mentioned, MP3 format is something that's uh, designed for compression and is designed to be playback, but that's not a format that a machine learning algorithm can use and understand. So a chromogram is a format which 
on the y it's you can think of it as a converting the audio into an image so mm -hmm. on the y axis you'll have a uh, the different the different notes in a scale so you'll have the note like c c sharp d etc um, and on the x axis you'll have time and it's it's kind of binned off and discretized so that this little tiny 0.1 millisecond each pixel is like 0.1 milliseconds in width um, you can think of it that way so it creates a picture from the audio data that uh, is, is inputted. And it does this through uh, taking a short-term Fourier transform of the, of the audio data um, in order to create this picture. Okay. Um, and, and that is actually something that's, that's really good for, for feeding into a neural network. Sounds very complex, and I guess you spent a lot of time working on that project, especially <laughs> for uh, the fine-tuning part. Yeah. You've mentioned the results that you've achieved 98% accuracy, and it works with Raga classical music. But I'm interested whether your system could be applied with other musical genres as well? Yeah, so not only musical genres, the PhonoNet system I developed is completely generalizable. So it can be applied to any task in which there's long-term uh, features and short-term features that need to be examined simultaneously. So I can give an example of that. If you're for example, doing if you want to do intrusion detection in, in a video camera. So let's say you have a video camera and you're wanting to detect, oh, if someone's trying to break into your house or not, something like that, you know? Uh, so you can actually use my algorithm to train a deep neural network that will look at the data from this video stream and it'll be able to examine patterns over long periods of time, like um, when it's day and night, so it will know that the changing of the sky color won't change the the prediction that it'll be a burglar, but it will also be able to look at um, short-term patterns, let's say like a, something jumps into the, the camera stream and be able to identify that this is a burglar going, going on. So that's one potential application. Another could be that, you know, in your, in your car, you often see that like a mechanic listens to the, the car and, 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 and tries to determine Oh, the sound, I know what's wrong. It's the, the, and they might mention some kind of part within the car that's, that's going wrong. The engine has, is leaking or something like that. So this could also be used as a diagnostic tool if you train a deep neural network to be able to predict what is a problem with a specific part or a tool that is making a specific sound. Um, so it can be used in a, a whole variety of domains, but specifically I do want to extend the system to be applied to uh, the South Indian form of Indian classical music called Carnatic music, and also to other types of world music that need to be preserved in, in this way. Yeah, who knows, perhaps Drake's songs will be visualized as well. <laughs> For sure. Really cool that it's not only able to record catchy tunes, but also catch the bad guys. <laughs> Car diagnostics, like, um, I don't know, Deep Sixth Sense, so very different fields. Why you received multiple awards at ISAB, because it, you know, could be implemented for different areas of life. So that's how you envision the project develop in the future? Yeah, and addition, additionally, um, I kind of want to, I mentioned that I have a, an application that I've developed um, that's available on GitHub, but I, I want to make that more accessible to the target audience of musicians and um, people who are interested in learning Indian classical music. So I'm planning on actually creating a web application where you can literally just sing live into your microphone on your laptop and I'll be able to visualize for you um, right there what the what raga you're singing in so you can so someone who's interested in learning the music can can for example see that they're maintaining 
a specific raga and not straying into another raga or see what specific features in a, in a performance are important for for representing the the chalan or the, the theme of the of the, of the of the raga in a good way okay i see and if well totally transform the way musicians learn music or learn how to do music and how to track their own progress. Yeah, I've seen it for myself. So I actually have started learning Indian classical music in the last um, two years. I've been starting to sing and I've found it really helpful to be able to pull up a performance of a great master and put it through my system and see that. And I'm actually learning from it and it's been an awesome tool for me to use myself. I've actually just been wondering that, whether you put so much effort and time into making this project, if you really started learning it on your own. Actually, after I started the project, I, um, I, I was so interested in this and that was my machine learning algorithm was working. I was at the same time, I just reached out and started to, to sing the same song. So I, I, I <laughs> talked to my parents and we found a, a music, like a Hindustani classical teacher in the community. And I've been going and learning from um, her uh, for the last two years about. Besides that, um, get hubbling. Is your music also available online? My personal music, I'm yeah. really not that good. <laughs> so in in the Hindustani classical music, like you need to be able to. Um, it, people study from when they're like four or five years old up until they're adults in order to have like a mastery of the music. But I think if you dig dig hard enough, you might be able to find a recording or two. <laughs> so we have to wait for your live concert for a couple of more years. I guess so. <laughs> it's going to be in the back of my mind. We've mentioned ISAF and that's the place where you brought your project to. And I've already gave it away as four letters, but it means so much to those who participated at, at that event. What does the ISAF experience represent? to you yeah I mean it was such a great experience um, that year like last year was actually my first time ever um, entering or even hearing about a science fair competition I didn't even know that ISAF existed before that so I entered my like San Diego regional fair and even then I, I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about what ISAF was I, I wasn't thinking of, of, of ever actually qualifying for that so it was a com completely unexpected and wonderful surprise um, to be able to go um, it was such a wonderful experience that I, I met some really wonderful friends from my delegation. I think you talked to Emily King um, already in a previous podcast, so she was actually from my San Diego delegation. Yep, before. that's right. Yeah. So we became really good friends, and I found a lot of really cool um, students um, that I, I connected to a lot. But I would say probably like the most like memorable moment was, was during the judging, actually. Um, and that was when I was talking to, I was talking to one of the judges and, 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 and we had started having a conversation that started to stray from the topic of my research actually. So he was talking <laughs> all about uh, machine learning and, and the state of, of machine learning in, 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 in its application to industry and, and research. And I was just talking to him for, for a really long time. It was during one of the breaks of the presentation. And I found out that he was the, he was actually the CTO of, of Magic Leap, which is like a really like large company in San Francisco. No way! And I, was, <laughs> and I was talking to this 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 person for so long, and he is actually like best friends with some of the people that I cited in my research. So it was crazy to see that like these people are human too, the 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 great um, people in this field, and that maybe if I keep going along this path, I can contribute to. And, and, and this was just such a wonderful opportunity to form connections with these people. So it was, it was a really cool experience, actually. 
I'm shook. Yeah, of course I've heard Musical.ly. That's the app. You download it and it record your music. And... Oh, sorry, it's, it's, it's the Magic Leap, actually. So it's it's a technology used for, for um, augmented reality. Okay. Um, it's Have you heard of the Oculus Rift technology, for example? It's a headset mm -hmm. they put on, on top of your eyes and it, it's oh, yeah. like a virtual reality. Yeah, so they, they work really closely, those two companies, and, and Magic Leap is actually um, like... A kind of almost a subsidiary of, of, of that company. They work really close together and they do the tracking. So they figure out exactly where your hands are in space and how you're moving around in space and they can track you. So if you're interested in video games, like that's going to be the future of, of video games probably, um, that, that technology that they're developing there. So it's really interesting to talk to them about kind of the difference between industry and academia and it made me kind of really interested to do research in industry maybe one day. Um, I'm not sure yet between between academia and industry, but it was a really cool uh, experience. That's insane. And what an encounter. That's quite a story. Especially, I think, what came down to me in the moral of the story and I've experienced it at like different uh, scientific championships is when you talk to someone and you don't know the title of that person and you just you know treat him like a human being like you actually enjoy the conversation and you don't really focus on oh he is or she is such an important person it really transformed the whole tone of the conversation for sure it definitely did and i think he was actually probably one of the most casually dressed um, judges that was there. I mean, he was just wearing like a t-shirt and some shorts or something like that. And it was really funny to see that uh, he was such a, <laughs> uh, like a large figure in the field. So. Such a cool guy. Actually, and in, in the Hungarian tales, um, there was this king in the 16th century, and he usually dressed as such a, I think, a farmer around the cities and towns and provided justice. And then when he uncovered himself, you know, that was the big jaw drop event. And, it, <laughs> and you can really decipher a person's character that way when you don't really show your um, self or your position. It's, a, it's an interesting experience for sure. And I'm, I'm glad that I was able to have that conversation without knowing all of that or else I might have been a little intimidated. <laughs> Going into it. Back to ISAF, could you share some of the most memorable moments of the week? Yeah, so I think probably the, so as I mentioned, the judging was a really great experience because I got to meet so many uh, people from industry and professors in the field, and it was really fun to actually talk to them. Talk to them. But I think the, the pin exchange and the student mixer were really cool because I got to talk to people from my delegation. Oh, and also, I so there's, everything was so good. That week was just a whole week of, of really fun times. Uh, I think going to some of the, the, the talks, there was one talk that actually looked, it, it talked about how the ocean uh, currents and how the weather um, is actually able to be monitored through the ocean. And I was just so fascinated by, by learning about all of that. And I actually like, later collaborated um, with a friend and, and was as was looking at um, these kind of ocean models and how we can learn from them. So I was so, so inspired seeing all of the different people um, that were there, all of the different ideas. Um, I think specifically the Panix James, the student mixer, and the talks that the ISEF put on were, were definitely the highlights of the, the week. It's definitely the prime of the week. Such cool event. Did you bring Conanet system to the mixer event or is that such, you know, an extreme way of thinking about it? <laughs> I, I, I did not bring it to the, the mixer, but uh, I think Hindustani classical music is maybe a little bit too serious for that kind of... Uh... <laughs> 
ISAP does not only last for those, I don't know, six or seven days, but the aftermath, so the consequences and the, really the fruits of those connections you make are really worth the, the whole experience as well. Definitely. Yeah, like along those lines, like um, I, I, I won a, like a, one of the prizes from the Acoustical Society of America during the during ISAF, during the special awards section. So after that, um, they actually reached out to me um, and asked me to present at their, uh, their, their workshop. So I'm presenting my PhonoNet paper actually at the, at the beginning of next month um, at one of their workshops that they're doing in San Diego. It happens to be this, this year. Um, doing the, like I'm, I'm actually giving a talk on, on the PhonoNet system there. So it, it's actually crazy to see like, Wow, one connection can lead to another and lead to another. It's just this, this whole chain, and ISAF was a really wonderful part of that. Congratulations, that sounds awesome. Yeah, or you also won GoDaddy Award? So that's, that's correct. It's the GoDaddy like, Best Use of Data Award, I believe. And also third award. So what did you feel when your name was called and you went to stage? It, it was kind of surreal. I, I, I wasn't expecting it by any means, um, especially like the special awards. Like, I had... I had actually the, the, the GoDaddy uh, team that I talked to, they actually weren't scheduled to interview me at all uh, in the first place. So it actually happened completely by chance. They were walking by and it was, it was during a break and I just, I just said hi to them. And they, after I said hi, they kind of came on over and I started talking about my project. But if I hadn't just reached out and said hi, they probably would have never seen my project or have been interested in it at all. So it was kind of a, a lesson to kind of reach out um, and, and talk to people, um, especially like during that judging session, I just kind of would say hi to the different judges and, and, and ask them about their research. Um, and then they, they would kind of interact with me. So I think that was kind of, it was very unexpected, to be honest, the, the, the special words that, that I received. Uh, especially. Well, I can conclude from that, that you never know what a single high can lead to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I'm not going to give relationship advice. <laughs> Talking about your projects and all the stuff that you've been doing, but have you always, you know, been drawn to science and how did you move into robotics and machine learning, programming and all that fun stuff? Yeah, so I, I, I would say that I've always had um, a lot of interest in like science, math, and engineering, like all the STEM fields. And I, I could probably have my dad to thank for that. Um, like in, when I was really little, like, you know, some people say grace before eat, eating food or, or, or they have a dinner table discussion about how their family's day went. So my dad, <laughs> he would always start our dinners with like a quote from, from one of Feynman's books. No way. <laughs> a pretty funny thing to do, but that was his idol, and he would, he would always introduce us to um, these kind of great scientific minds, and we would watch documentaries all the time, and I still remember like doing small science experiments with my dad when I was little, like he taught me about like centripetal force, uh, <laughs> centrifugal um, force by, by taking a bucket and rotating it over his head. I still remember that kind of scene <laughs> in the backyard, and when I tried doing it, I ended up with a bucket of water on my head. He's been a great influence um, in terms of my interest in, in science and has definitely kind of sparked that for me. 
I'm really shook, you know, it's not the kind of casual dinner setting you would expect, but you never know that those little things, those little habits that are introduced to your life can make such a big difference in the long run. So that was the initial point. And then you are, of course, drawn to science, but how did you actually start doing research? My first research opportunity was through my school's robotics team. So I've been doing robotics since fourth grade, but at my high school, um, I started um, in my school's robotics team and I was working on some a program to do autonomous driving of our, of our robot during the initial portion of the game. So uh, I, I was doing some research and I actually found an open source repository from a lab in, in UC Berkeley. And I decided to kind of adapt that code to the work that I was doing in robotics. So I, I downloaded that repository and I started doing some, some work with it um, and making modifications and improvements um, and adapting it to for use on a robot. And in the process of doing that, I ended up actually making a few modifications that improved the performance of the system. So I created a pull request on that repository, um, which, which basically means saying that, oh, this is a suggestion I have for improving the repository. Um, and I sent that on GitHub to, to, to the lab who was, was managing that project. So when they saw that, that pull request, they actually, the professor actually reached out to me and offered me a position for the summer. So I got to actually work um, remotely for that research lab. I was working in San Diego, the lab was in UC Berkeley, but I was working remotely uh, doing some research. Um, on autonomous driving for that summer. So that whole process, and Professor Carl Zipster actually was my PI during that process, it was a really inspiring um, time and, and crucial for me learning um, machine learning, learning computer science, learning how, learning the process of publication um, even, um, because it was just a, I had no background in, in machine learning before going into that. And I think that laboratory it was a really small lab. I was really engaged with the work that they were doing. That was a really great introduction to research, and it really made me fall in love with that kind of thing. It was a little bit up north, so you literally had to take the extra mile. But that was <laughs> that was the project when you were working on end-to-end self-driving cars, if I understood correctly. Yes. So yeah, actually, um, so it was in Berkeley, which is it's it, it's a like a one or two hour plane ride, and it takes like a whole day if you're wanting to drive up there. So I worked primarily from San Diego, but I would go I, w- I would go up to Berkeley. Um, I, I went a few times that summer to, to kind of work with the actual lab that, that was there. Um, but yeah, it was we were working on end-to-end uh, autonomous driving, um, and the, the group was focused on driving in unstructured conditions. So it was kind of cool. We got to work with these little small-scale autonomous cars. There were one-tenth scale autonomous cars that drove on the sidewalk. So my job was essentially, I was just babysitting this little car and letting it run on the sidewalk, make turns. And it was pretty fun to be able to do that and collect data and and actually create my own algorithm for analyzing that. So cool, babysitting on ML level. Yeah, that's that's some (laughs) new kind of stuff. You've mentioned publishing, and that's a realm, we can say, that is not so easy to decipher and just really know what steps are you have to take. So you've already published some of your works in journals. How did that work for you? Yeah, so it was a, it was a pretty daunting process at first. Um, it, I was actually encouraged by my professor, Professor Carl Zipser at UC Berkeley to do the first publication with my research on, on uh, I, I created a neural network that was inspired by 
like a salamander actually. So at that time, um, I I created that network and and the, I, I created a paper. I, I drafted a paper and looking back on it, I can I can read that first draft and it was completely terrible. Um, <laughs> but I, I didn't know that at the time and I, I ended up just submitting that to the top robotics conference um, <laughs> in the world, the top international robotics conference, and I was. I was rejected, and I was extremely harshly rejected. So some of the comments said, like, oh, how dare you submit this to this kind of place? Like, it's not at the level of that we would expect. And I was, I was, I was pretty taken aback at that point. I said, oh, oh, no. Um, but I... <laughs> What's I, a move? I yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know what, what this field was like. So I, I had no experience in writing a research paper. I didn't know what it was like. And actually, um, my professor, Professor Carl Zipster, he actually also hadn't published in the field of computer science. He's actually a former neuroscientist. So he didn't really know the norms of the field either. Um, so uh, we were kind of all working together on, on, on this project. Um, and so the reviewers from the, that top conference I submitted to actually provided a lot of really crucial feedback that I incorporated back into my work, and I submitted again. And the second time, I also got rejected because I applied to the number two international conference on robotics. But this time, the comments were a lot better, and I got a lot of really good feedback from from the the, the reviewers. So I incorporated that back again, and the third time was a charm. I was able to publish that work um, in, in a conference. So I think really just the shooting for, for something is, is a really great way to start um, with your publication, kind of just going out for... A, I would recommend applying for like double blind conferences specifically because those are the conferences in which the reviewers aren't able to see your name and you aren't able to see the reviewer's name. So it's kind of anonymized mm-hmm. in, in that way. And they won't know that you're just a high school student publishing um, this work and that, that can uh, kind of help in the process. And I would also say just just keeping on trying and, and not to be discouraged by um, initial rejection that comes your way. So I think that whole process of, of submitting and then getting a rejection and applying, it taught me how to write a research paper. So when it came to PhotoNet, I was actually able to publish two more research papers in um, some in another ACM-ICMR conference. And, um, so, and that was able to be accepted on the first time only because I had that previous experience on how to structure this paper and how to, how to best format my uh, ideas and, and results. So inspirational, and also not to be discouraged, they reject you, but just keep trying, keep going. And of course, research is also about trial and error. You cannot avoid that. Reminded of something just in brackets, when I first entered my first scientific competition, I didn't know what to expect. So that was an oral presentation before the whole jury. I was just presenting bacterial infections as a well, stand-up comedy, because it had like a green um, skin transformation, and I put in a photo of Master Yoda from Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, the teacher's like, oh yeah, that's real nice, but you know, that's really not what a <laughs> conference is all about. Yeah. You learn from those experiences and eventually get you to the places you would like to be. We are talking about Berkeley, but there's another top institute on our plate, and that's Caltech. Can you share about that experience? I actually was presenting that multi-net, the, the autonomous driving paper that I did um, at the Southern California Robotics Symposium. And when I was there, it, it actually happened, I, I presented my research work, and during the coffee break of that symposium, um, I just sat next to, uh, I, I just I just sat down at a table that had someone sitting there, um, 
I didn't really know who that was. And I started talking to that person about my research, and it turned out to be the, the organizer of the event. He was, his name was Professor Sun Jo Chung, and he was the, he's a kind of, he's do, doing research in aerospace robotics and control. So I sat next to him and I started talking to him about his research and he was, he was, he was impressed by, uh, I guess my, the research I was, I was talking about and he, he offered to have me work at the lab during the summer. So last summer, um, just a few months back, um, I was still working in, in Caltech and I was doing research with, um, using reinforcement learning, which is a type of machine learning to look at how you can train drones to herd flocks of birds away from no-fly zones like airports. Okay. So I can, and, and, and that was a really interesting research project and it actually evolved from that initial topic to be a little bit more general um, later on. But I had the experience to actually live by myself in Caltech. So I, I got to kind of get an experience of independence before college. Um, I stayed with, at an Airbnb near the university and I was kind of commuting and working there by myself. It was a great experience. How was that living the free campus life? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was interesting. Uh, I learned how to cook for myself a lot more because I didn't have my parents to help me out in, in that respect. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It, it gave me a lot of independence and also taught me kind of. I, I came out of that experience a lot more responsible for <laughs> like cleaning my room and things like that. For what my parents do for me now, I guess. Living near Caltech teaches you culinary skills as well. <laughs> just a comment on that and I think it's so important to be open-minded and also open in that way that you are ready to establish new relationships and you are not brave but you know confident enough to walk up to those people and just have a conversation because you never know what that will bring forward in the future. You've been sharing some advice here on the podcast but now I want to reverse the roles and ask you what is the best piece of advice you've been given and would like to share with the listeners. At the Airbnb that I was staying at um, during the summer at Caltech, um, I was actually at that at that place, um, the house, uh, the person who was, who was managing the house, who owned the house, um, he was actually a psychologist. Um, and, and I had talked to him about my experiences and stuff like that. And the thing that he told me was, was that and all of the students, he actually works with students like myself and other, and other students and, and helps them um, to try to be more, more successful. So he said, of all of the students he's seen, those who have parents that are extremely hyper-involved and kind of pestering them all the time to do this and that, um, they probably have the least success. Hmm. And that the success that, you, that if you want success, you should be a self-starter and you should take control of your own learning. Um, so your motivation should come from you, and if you really want something, then you'll do whatever it takes to, to do that. And you should kind of work with yourself to figure out, what do I want to do, and then go out and achieve that, rather than being convinced by what someone else tells you you should do. So I think that's probably um, the biggest advice I, I, I've received, and I, I, I would want to give to someone else, is that be a self-starter. Um, reach out and find opportunities that are available to you. Um, because if you really want something yourself, then you're going to be able to do that. It's a valuable encounter and advice because it really should flow from within. You are constantly seeking external words of affirmation or, you know, praise from others. You're going to rely constantly on that external stimulus. Do it for yourself or for the advancement of something, not because you want to make a good impression.
Yeah, it's so important. Because a lot of scientists, if we think about the past, they didn't receive a lot of recognition and they still continue doing their work. Exactly. Deal a little bit with psychology, not just about the pure research work, because there are a lot of that's going on behind the scenes and the quality of your work also depends on the quality of your state of mind. It's so crucial to have people like him. Definitely. There's an if question... And I like digging a little bit deeper to just share, you know, point of views, how we view society today. So that's why I'm asking you if you had a magic wand or you would be, you know, a legal czar, what would you change in today's society and why? I think something that I've been seeing myself a lot lately is that um, there's been a movement towards kind of people being really fixed in whatever views they have. Um, and, and also like polarization um, of, of viewpoints and, and where people kind of identify with a specific group and, and embody the values of that group, whether that be in political parties or, or elsewhere in society. So I would say that I would, um, if I could wave a magic wand, I would want people to have real discussions um, and be more open to, to change and kind of think of... Um, public policy and, and, and all their interactions as a scientist would rather than being fueled by the specific views of a group they belong to instead look at the specific evidence in each individual case and and, and making rational conclusions based on that evidence so mm-hmm. I, I would kind of want people in general to have especially in politics want them to have um, a kind of a more scientific mindset I think if we can accomplish that by 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 voting more scientists into office and, and having them more involved in, in, in government. I think that would actually make a really big impact on um, all of the world societies. I mean, it would allow us to tackle problems like climate change more seriously. It would allow us to make um, more rational decisions on, on what would benefit the largest group of people, uh, things like that. Yeah, thinking about the broad picture and also about its implications, it's essential to introduce the rationale, have these... I know, open space discussions, um, not fueled by anger or shouting at each other, but having not a heart-to-heart talk, but a mind-to-mind talk. Open to, to other people's viewpoints and understanding that when, when you're having a conversation. I think that's really important. Who is a person living today or in the past, you choose, who you would want as a dinner guest? Um, I think I would probably go with um, uh, Donald Knut. So he is actually, you probably haven't heard of him, he, has, he hasn't been like celebrated much in, in the media, but he is actually um, the professor at Stanford, I believe, now he's retired, but he, he did a lot of pioneering work in computer science. So specifically, he wrote um, this book, um, The Art of Computer Science. And that's kind of hallowed as this, like the Bible of, of computer science. It actually very clearly defined um, what computer science is, and and it's it's a it's a mammoth of a book, but it, it, it's amazing. And, and just hearing his story has been so like inspiring to me in terms of his ingenuity and, and ability to apply problems. So when he was writing this book, he he was first trying to write the book, and he he decided that um, okay, there's no good programming language for me to write this book. Um, so he ended up creating his own assembly language, his own programming language that he used within the book um, to program, and that's that's become extremely popular after after his his writing of it. 
But then after he created that programming language, he said, oh, there's no current good um, software I can use to write the book. How do I format the book? How do I type it up? I don't want to use a typewriter. How do I, how do I come up with the book? So then he came up with a programming language called Tech that's currently used um, by academia people everywhere when they are writing their papers. So that tech typesetting software he then created. But when he was creating that typesetting software, he found that um, there's no good fonts to use. So he created <laughs> a programming language that was able to define fonts and create the most aesthetic fonts for use. So that, hearing that story of how he kind of solved one problem and created a solution and solved another problem and created a solution where most people would just um, give up or come up with um, another or, or just rely on something that already existed that wasn't as good as what he wanted, he kind of just kept pushing. And, and that's something that's really inspirational to me. So I would really want to have a conversation with him about his research, his accomplishments, and, and that would be a really interesting dinner guest to have, for sure. That sounds incredible. Like, at each problem uh, presented him, he really leveled up his game. Exactly. And <laughs> that's so cool. And I guess uh, you would want him to sign the book you've been talking about. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So actually, the funny thing about that book, that's like one of my uh, dreams to someday accomplish is he has a challenge in that if you can find a mistake in that book, that he will mail you a check for $2.56 from a fake bank um, of sensory. So it's like a, it's like almost like a trophy or award for finding a mistake in that book. So that's what I want to, I want to do that someday. Um, and maybe I can also meet him. What a motivation. Yeah, he sounds like a very cool dude for doing that. We're gonna do a little bit of a game, this or that game. First one, perhaps it's hard to decide or perhaps it's really easy. C, C++ or Python? Definitely Python. So I use both. Um, C++ is way better for doing things like quickly and doing things like um, uh, computations. Because it's much quicker to use um, in terms of its efficiency, but Python has such an incredible community of developers, and it's the standard in machine learning applications, and it's so extensible. And I love how the like how it's actually written um, a lot. So I, I that's my go-to programming language whenever I'm writing anything. Definitely Python. Okay, the most well-known snake in the community. Yeah, and also a non-dangerous one. <laughs> Pizza or hamburger. Pizza or hamburger? Okay, I am a vegetarian, so I would definitely go with pizza. Okay, <laughs> all right. And what topping would you choose? Something maybe a little bit controversial, but I really like pineapple on pizza. We're in the same team. <laughs> We're in the same team? Okay. <laughs> so I would put some pineapple and some, some basil and, and, and maybe a little bit of tomato, um, like some dried tomatoes, and that's, that's, that's a perfect pizza. Yeah, good combination. Android or Apple? Android. Dancing or singing? Uh, definitely singing. I am so clumsy. I just don't remember in fifth grade we had to do uh, mandatory like ballroom dancing. Uh, I was just tripping all over the place. I cannot dance at all. Oh, I can sing maybe a little bit at least. So you had mandatory ballroom dancing? That sounds so cool. Yeah, it's in fifth grade. They just do a, like a one-week lesson uh, where some teachers come by and they, they teach you how to how to how to do like square dancing and some stuff like that. I've actually been doing ballroom dancing for quite a few years. I've liked it. It was like at a time when I was 13, 14, and the boys were not so willing to do dancing, you know, that transitory phase. I really appreciate, especially um, Indian class, like Indian classical forms of dance, um, because in, in India, like when you perform a, uh, like a, a 
musical performance, there's actually specific styles of dance that go along with it. And I think they're really beautiful. Uh, so in, in terms of what I actually enjoy to watching, I, I don't know. They're, they're, both, they're both really amazing. Um, so I, I would have a hard time deciding. But for, for myself, for, I, I can only sing. So that's what I'll go with. Accomplishing your music career, you might move into dancing. <laughs> yes, maybe. We'll see about that. <laughs> Then, last one, early bird or night owl? That's actually, it's kind of changed. So I used to be a night owl. But in recent times, I've found myself being a lot more productive when I wake up um, a little bit early. So I, I've been starting to, in, in the last few months, kind of wake up really early before school and, and get some work done at a coffee shop beforehand. In order to do that, I have to sleep early. So I think I like doing that a little bit less, but I think I'm more productive if I do that. So that's what I've been sticking to. So before going to school, you say, but first coffee. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> the closing question is, what does science mean to you? Yeah, so kind of, I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier in my question with the, what do I want to see if I could wave a magic wand, but science is kind of how I understand and perceive the world and how I make um, decisions and come across a conclusion. I mean, the scientific process um, and the scientific method, it, it like mimics how I go about my daily life. It's how I understand and perceive the world on like the most fundamental level. And I think it should be something that's not limited to the laboratory or what I'm programming, but something that I use and apply in, 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 in daily life. Totally transforms the way you see life, the way you handle dinner table conversations, we can say that. <laughs> Being in a STEM field also gives you a really good platform how to use logics, for example, in, in having a conversation or how to present your ideas because it teaches you those soft skills as well. I agree. Yeah. I the presentation aspect of it has been a really interesting experience because, I don't know, I've, I've, I've met a lot of uh, different people by presenting at different conferences and things like that. And, and that has been something that's kind of instrumental to the scientific process, I think, that's sometimes forgotten, is that after you do your research, you have to present it and share it and, and iterate on it after talking with others. So I think that's a really cool aspect of, of science. Without a little bit of marketing, it will not reach the receptor or the target. That was a really inspirational podcast, and we've also learned more about Indian music and received some cool advice, so thank you for coming. Of course, thank you for having me up. Thank you guys for tuning into this episode. I hope you've been inspired to jump into doing research or pour into the field you are drawn to. Or just simply remain perseverant in your walk. I usually keep you guys posted on Instagram, so go to the gram and hit that follow button. You can always listen to the episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iTunes. These are the main podcast hosting platforms. So if you celebrate Christmas, I wish you a wonderful time. Subscribe to the pod so that you don't miss any episode out. And yeah, thanks again for taking a few moments of science with us.